You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. From smart mailboxes to walking cars, journalists, executives, and techies all descended on the Vegas Strip this week for the 2019 Consumer Electronics Show. The annual event attracted over 200,000 people eager to see the latest innovations the industry has to offer. The exhibits reflected the news, with privacy, trade, and 5G technology dominating discussions. Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg joined us from CES to discuss the hurdles and opportunities with their own rollout of a residential 5G option. I think that we had prepared ourselves for a long time for doing the 5G home, which is our first use case of 5G. We did that uh, in four cities only in the beginning, and that's where we still are in those four cities. The customers were having, they're happy, and they're staying with with the business, and we actually are getting better performance than we expected. So we're very happy with that. And as soon as we get the next generation of of equipment, uh, basically the home routers, uh, we will continue the rollout of uh, the 5G home. So we're very happy with the with outcome so far. Eventually, this will go national as well. Just step back for a moment, uh, Hans, and give us a sense of for end users, what does 5G network mean for their existing experience versus new services that they'll be able to tap? I think that what we need to realize that uh, 4G to 5G is a quantum leap when it comes to speed, throughput and latency and uh, many of the sort of capacities of 5G are also very catered for industries but if you're a consumer you're going to see a totally different type of throughput I mean we're going to see uh, gigabits of throughput instead of megabits of throughput when you go to 5G we call it the 5G ultra wideband uh, for example in the 5G home right now I mean we are, we are uh, committing to minimum 300 megabits per second at the home with wireless uh, and we see much higher numbers. Of course, it's a very much a different throughput on the wireless network compared to 4G. So, But the whole ecosystem has to be there. The, the infrastructure which we're building and then, of course, the handsets or the CPs for the home, etc. So we're now working on that and we're going to roll out quite a lot here in the first half year of 2019 when it comes to smartphones. 
That all sounds very exciting for consumers. My question to you, though, is AT&T, your competitor, plans to introduce an interim 5G e-service to mark the transition towards 5G. To what extent does that set perhaps false expectations for mobile customers and their understanding of what 5G can entail? I think what they're going to talk about here at CES is about the eight different capacities. I call it currencies that 5G is, is sort of uh, giving in the future where we actually are building out the whole network. We are building all our network to be prepared for delivering those eight currencies. And we want our customers to feel that that's a quantum leap from 4G. We want mm. them to feel the same as when they went from the 3G phone to a 4G phone. But this is going to be even bigger. And, of course, we work with enterprises because they're going to benefit benefit from it and society at large because some of the things that 5G is bringing out is lower power consumption, maybe a tenth of what we're doing on the 4G network. So there's so many other things and that's what we're building the network for to actually be enabling all those type of capacities of the 5G network. Hans, you're talking a lot about the infrastructure needs, the building needs, and Scarlett brings up a great point that it's almost you against AT&T, whereas when we look across to China, for example, they've got a national focus on 5G infrastructure, on 5G use, on winning the battle for 5G ahead of the US. Is there a risk that this free market focus that the US has will leave you behind China? We have a Verizon focus, and I'm very confident that's going to be the best focus and the, the focus that's going to be the number one in the world. We were first on the 5G. We're going to continue that strike. We've always been on the, on the leading edge on technology. We have been working with 5G for many years already. We have built our network because there's so many more things you need to do than only having the equipment and smartphone. You, have a, you need a lot of fiber. You need to densify your network. You need a real estate close to our customers. So all of that uh, we have been building for years. So, no, I'm not worry about that. I'm, 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 I'm very focused on having Verizon in number one position. That's my work. Well, having focus. said that, to piggyback on what Caroline was just saying, is the U.S. at a disadvantage perhaps because the supply chain is not all based in the United States? Uh, most of the equipment builders are Asian or European. No, I think that we have been working with the, the European uh, equipment manufacturers over years, and they have been turning out very good for us. So I don't see that as a disadvantage. They are very early on this technology uh, stride, and we have been working with them to, to make uh, out the best of the technology. And remember, we started basically two years ahead of everybody else to, to plan for the 5G. And uh, initially planning was basically to launch tw- uh, 5G in 2020. We've proven that we launched it already in 2018. Then, of course, course, you have to set the expectation. There's going to come so many iterations of 5G over the years, so of course it's going to be spread out over time. All these great features of 5G, but to be honest, we already have launched 5G uh, two years ahead of the schedule mm. because our focus on bringing the best to our customers. You're saying Verizon will be the winner, Hans. When will it be, when will 5G, for example, bring you a billion dollars in terms of revenue? When will it be significant to your business? We have said that uh, in 19, it's, it's still going to be a very important market for us to be early on, but it's not going to be significant on the turnover that we have. We're going to see that coming in 2020 and 2020 and beyond. That's where we're going to see it. And remember, there are so many different use cases. There is the 5G home for us. It's a 5G mobility. And then it's a 5G for enterprises. All of them are coming a little bit uh, different in timing, but yeah. it's the same network we're building. So we do it as a network as a service. So, of course, uh, to, for us to get meaningful, 
full impact on our total revenue, it's going to take uh, uh, some time. But you need to build it now and you need to do it now. All right. So 2020 and beyond, perhaps. Let's talk a little bit about your current partners. And I want to get to Apple, of course, because uh, of its manufacturing capacity, at least for you guys in, in, in your services. The company, as you know, cut its revenue guidance uh, last week because of China, citing a slowdown there. Are you concerned about that? Do you see what Apple is saying it's experiencing? We released our wireless numbers this morning for the fourth quarter. <clears throat> we had 1.2 million new net additions in the quarter. We had 650,000 net uh, addition on phones this quarter. That's uh, the strongest quarter we have in a long time. I think uh, my team in a very competitive market had continued to have a good stride. So we added more than uh, doubling the net additions on phone in the fourth quarter compared to the third quarter. So I think that the, what we are seeing in the marketplace, we're acting. Uh, our customers are staying with us. We're very low churn as well, 0.82 in this quarter. So I cannot really comment on what's happening in China, but I can see what we are doing in this market in a very competitive environment. Uh, we continue to do well. Sticking with Apple, though, to a certain extent in the US, do you think what they're offering is just too expensive? Are their average selling prices too high? I think that's not for me to define. I mean, it's uh, the ultimate consumers deciding if it's too expensive or not. As I said, when I look back on the fourth quarter that we just reported the wireless number this morning, we had a really good quarter in a very competitive market. So, and that means that all the different type of uh, handset manufacturers that were arranging, all of them were part of that uh, success, of course. I want to follow up, therefore, on what you are experiencing in the U.S. You say you brought out great numbers in preliminary fourth quarters. You're mentioning one. 1.2 million subscribers added. Are we at peak consumer? How much more will we see the consumer build out in the US and continue to add to your, to your growth? I'm happy to talk about what we reported this morning because that's the fourth quarter. I'm not giving any, any new guidance. But I think that what we, you have seen from Verizon since we launched Unlimited, we promised to come back to growth and we did it before we, we said them. And I think that the team is doing well. But ultimately, it's, it's, it's down to the customers choosing the, the networks that they like to be on. And I think that what we have invested in our network and how well it's performing, basically always the best network, that is paying off. We're going to continue to invest in that and we're going to follow what the market is is going. But uh, so far, when we report the fourth quarter, we are happy with the performance that uh, my team in wireless have done. Yeah. Well, there are things you can control, and then there are things that are out of your control, perhaps. I, I want to get your thoughts yeah. on, on the big picture here. What keeps you, Hans Vesberg, up at night when it, when it comes to the bigger picture issues? Is it geopolitics? Is it the trade rhetoric between the U.S. and China, the U.S. and basically our trading partners? Is it domestic discord, uh, the shutdown, the poisonous tone in politics? Is it higher interest? streets? I think that, first of all, you, all these things you need to deal with if you're a large corporation. And Verizon is a large company, so you need to deal with it. So I think there are always things happening outside your boundaries. You need to understand what you can impact on it and what you cannot do about it. I think we constantly are trying to be close to what's happening, but it's nothing special I think about that that is worse, more worse than others. It's just how uh, the landscape is around us uh, leading a large corporation. And, and you just need to be very attentive to it and understand how that impacts your business and ultimately how it impacts your customers and what you can do for your customers to, to continue to give them a great service. In this landscape, is it the right time to start perhaps selling off parts of the business? I'm in particular thinking of your media part of the business, what was known as Oath. 
I think I've said that I'm very happy with the assets we have. We have the, we're in the middle of a huge transformation, both from a network point of view, from a process point of view, and also from a structure point of view, where we're putting up a new structure with the Verizon Consumer Group, Verizon Business Group, and Verizon Media Group from the second quarter. So we're, we feel that those assets for us is working out very well, and now it's time for us to execute on the new structure we have. So uh, no, there's nothing in, in, the, in the works of, of any divestments. This week also had plenty of headlines for Fed watchers. Minutes from the FOMC December meeting were released on Wednesday. And despite the unanimous decision to raise rates, the records of their discussions revealed a more cautious approach and highlighted downside risks policymakers are currently facing. We spoke with Alicia Levine, chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, after they were released and started by asking whether she thought now that all of the fallout from the December hike was actually unwarranted. Well, I'm happy to see that there was caution in the minutes because it means that the market didn't mug the Fed. (laughs) Because if you remember, the three trading days after the hike, the market sold off 9%. And then just last Friday, Powell was very dovish in his comments. And there's a concern if there's that much of a difference between the FOMC and what the market is saying. And you just don't want it to be a messaging issue. You want it to be that this is what the FOMC really believes that caution is warranted, that they're going to be data dependent, and there are alternative outcomes that they should be aware of. So actually, I take great comfort in these minutes. Maybe it's a fixation issue rather than a messaging issue because everyone in the markets was obsessed with the idea that the Fed would address its balance sheet reduction. Mm. And when Powell said, we're on autopilot, that got everyone all spooked. My question to you now, though, is we've had nine interest rate increases of 25 basis points. We've gone from the zero bound to two and a half percent. A big argument for why the Fed wanted to continue to raise heights, uh, raise rates and normalize policy is to build some dry powder for when it needs to fight the next recession. Is nine rate hikes enough? Does it get us there? So I always thought this was an interesting argument because you don't want to kill the patient in the hope that you can save him later. (laughs) And I think a little bit that discussion is about should we kill the patient first? And I would prefer not to do that. And I think that what's very interesting here is that the Fed pauses and it's a real pause. You can heal markets. You can heal the economy because don't forget the sell-off was so violent in the fourth quarter. Let's not forget that most companies, most stocks were in a bear market. You had terrible results in portfolios. Households right now have more of their wealth tied to equities than to housing for the first time since the late 90s. So there's going to be a real effect in the real economy. There has to be some healing here. If you do that, you can extend the expansion and you can keep growth going at a steady pace. So I I would prefer to see that than to see a buildup of dry powder that you can then use, but your patient's dead. Nevertheless, when they're looking at the patient, they're still thinking perhaps given looking at two more hikes in 2019, whether or not that kills kills the patient or not. The the patient, the market thinks it would. The market's not seeing any rate hike for 2019. We're hearing caution, but the dot plots still say the Fed's going to go in 2019. Do you think that they will to that extent? So that's a great, great question, Caroline, because the truth of the matter is that the market has been much more dovish than the Fed this entire rate cycle. And we've seen what happens when the Fed collides with the expectations. Mm. So I do 
do think that there's a pause for the six months of the year for the reasons we've discussed, that the data is coming in much weaker in the rest of the world. There will be some effect in the real economy from the market sell-off. I think the Fed needs to see some healing there. The issue is, let's say you get a hike in, the, in July or in September. The issue is, do you heal the economy enough that a second hike comes into play? Mm. And that's an unknown. Interesting. That's an unknown. And let's just point out, the market is pricing in zero hikes for 2019, which is part of the bullishness in the market right now, a cut in 2020, and it's also pricing in a deal with China. So now we have all this great news beginning to be priced in, which is why the market's moved up 8 to 10% in the last six trading days. So how do you play it? What do you do with your capital now? Well, a lot of it depends on how the corporate earnings will look, especially next week when they start beginning to report those results. What's your take on the pre-announcements we've gotten so far? Some mm-hmm. high-profile names, FedEx, Apple, Constellation Brands. Why haven't we gotten any positive uh, pre-announcements? Because we're not going to get many positive pre-announcements. The global economy is just a lot worse than I think we, th- we all thought about three to four months ago. And if you look at Germany, for instance, industrial production yesterday tells yeah. you Germany's very close to being in a recession. And that's the powerhouse of Europe. So Europe's in trouble. We've got Brexit coming up. We've got Italy, as we know, as a problem. And we've got France a little bit on life support right now. So you've got Europe as a problem. And I think you're going to see more pre-announcements. Don't forget, the S&P is more sensitive to the global economy than the U.S. economy is. So the U.S. economy is essentially a closed economy. But the S&P revenue is 40% it's based on overseas revenue. So you're going to feel it first in the S&P. You're going to feel it first in, in earnings announcements. Mm. And it's going to hit the market first, which is partly why the Fed was so far apart from where the market was, because the market saw this coming, that the earnings are really at risk. Anisha, it sounds like you think the market's got ahead of itself. It's not pricing in some of the risks anymore. Therefore, where are you advising clients put cash? Where are you thinking the portfolio should be? So we're actually pretty positive for the first part of the year, in part because we do see the dovishness from the Fed. Let me emphasize this was a sea change. And it's very important to heal certain things within the market and the real economy. Don't forget that mortgage rates have come down 50 basis points from the 5% high that should support housing. It should, and, don't for, and it should help autos as well as, as, as yields have come down. So that's, that's all good. I do think that the market was way oversold, particularly that last week of the year when, you know, it was a slaughter. And it's not surprising there's a panic buying going on. Mm. Okay. I think you're going to get resistance. We're very close to 2,600, 2,640. I think that's the first test. These things, t- when, when there's so much damage, you don't get V-like recoveries. You get some retesting, some yeah. retracement. I would expect that. But overall, I see a positive bias going into the first half of the year. And the rest is really what happens with China and whether we can stabilize earnings with China. Right now, I'm at a 5% earnings growth for 2019. Below market. Below market, which has been coming down. Don't forget, October 1st, earnings growth was at 10%. So yeah. now we're at 8 I see five. You need you need WTI over fifty. Okay, we're there. Okay, to stay. <laughs> and you also need some resolution with China earlier in the year to keep the earnings going. Otherwise, you're going to have uncertainty, and you're going to have earnings come in. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight: athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Then we spoke with Wall Street's biggest Facebook bear about why he is getting even more bearish on the social media giant. Brian Weiser, senior analyst at the Pivotal Research Group, cut his price target on a stock to $113 a share, citing increasing growth risks. We started by asking Brian why he thought Mark Zuckerberg's problems were only going to get worse. I just feel that we haven't gotten anywhere close to bottom yet. Um, the reality is that, uh, first of all, the company doesn't seem to fully acknowledge the scale of the problems that it faces. Uh, what they have said they're doing with respect to platform safety, uh, you know, 30,000 mostly outsourced content moderators is going to be entirely insufficient. Um, if you can baseline what they're doing in Germany uh, for Holocaust denial as a sole thing, the extrapolation from that, if they were trying to look for something equivalent globally, would be about 90,000 people. And the fact that they're outsourcing suggests that they're not accounting for as much cost as they'll need to. Um, I think you still have governments who are um, wanting to throw the book at them uh, in one form or another. It, it, it may be that regulation in the United States turns out to be tame. I don't think that will be true in Europe and many other places. Uh, I think if anyone is really uh, you know, controlling this, it would be the EU. If they want to break up Facebook, they can uh, in different forms, and I don't think Facebook is well positioned for that. Mm. Um, you could look at uh, you know, WhatsApp in the most recent revelations there that, oh yeah, they're connecting to, a, uh, they're enabling a child pornography distribution uh, and enabling ad dollars going in to support that. Uh, new problems keep coming up, and it feels like the company is, for lack of a better word, broken from the top down. Um, we just haven't seen the end of it yet. Got and it. I think that the risks are still to the downside. Is the so how do you see this materializing, these risks materializing? Because you, you have a litany of issues that could really hang over the company and, and weigh on management, but nothing's really blown up as of yet uh, in, in a way that really forces the company to look inward. What will that catalyst be? Oh, I wouldn't say it hasn't blown up yet. I mean, even their uh, enhanced uh, expense guidance uh, for 2019 certainly does relate to it. Um, I think it's a factor uh, in revenue deceleration. It's obviously not the primary reason. Um, now, remember, the reason why I've been negative starting in the middle of 2017 was yeah. because of revenue deceleration risks. I think that all of this causes extra scrutiny on the advertising budgets. Yeah. Um, so do we see it play out as worse than we're expecting? I mean, again, that's a 2019-2020 issue. Yeah. Um, do the expenses uh, continue to rise in 2020 beyond um, what, what most investors already expect? So in terms of how we see it play out, it's really on the expense side that we'd see it. And then, again, the headline risk, I mean, we call it headline risk. It's a, an oversimplification. But if governments or others cause Facebook to have to change how they operate, Yeah. right? We're just not going to see it in any one quarter's numbers, right. but we will see it play out over time. 
Brian, it's interesting. You say, look, they're going to have to be spending more to keep up with regulation, to improve and indeed to spend their way out of these situations. But what about the user base and a drive with their feet there? Because you would have thought things have got worse enough to stop people using Facebook, using Instagram, using WhatsApp, but they haven't. And we still continue to see engagement trends doing pretty well. No, they're not. I would disagree with that. Uh, so, first of all, the latest data I've seen from Nielsen for the United States for adults 18 plus shows core Facebook use is down 12%. Yet again, it's persistently down low double digits. But their other year assets year. are continuing to. But not well. enough to make up for it. Not enough to make up for it. If you look at Facebook in its entirety, it's flat in a market that's still growing double digits in terms of consumption. The share is going down by 200 bips year over year. Will Instagram eventually get caught up then in these Facebook perception problems? Because all the bulls out there say, well, Instagram's doing fine. It's kind of walled off from Facebook's issues. It may be, but I don't think most investors appreciate how small Instagram is by comparison. This is the problem. Instagram is approximately 13% of the size in terms of time and usage of the platform of total Facebook. It's small. It can grow 30%, 40% year over year. But on that base, when you have the core Facebook declining as much as it is, it's not enough to make a difference. But they've got the other levers, right? Because WhatsApp, they could start to monetize as well. They haven't figured out what that is, and then mm. they have a whole other host of problems to figure out because I don't think that governments are going to allow WhatsApp to continue uh, with the level of encryption it's had. Again, the, the number of scandals that just keep coming out with that, uh, you know, whether it's social, uh, societal destabilization in different countries mm. around the world or sharing of uh, illegal content, I don't think they'll be able to continue as they right. have. 2018 was a rough year for hedge funds. Fabio Salvadelli, adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, came on to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in the industry, which spanned from outperformance down to staggering losses and even shuttered shops. We began by asking Fabio about the fund's crowned biggest losers of the year. You know, that's one way to view it. The question is, is that alpha? Is sticking to the same thing alpha? Uh, have you entered into a different world? Uh, just watching the monitor just 30 seconds ago, I, there may be something introducing some volatility into the markets <laughs> that wasn't there two or three years ago. And, and systemically, what we've seen is a tremendous number of funds that performed really well this year, Crispin among them, uh, that, that actually, when you look at it over two years, are basically flat or have had a very poor year. Very, very few funds that were up more than 10% this year weren't down last year. And a lot of the funds that were up 10% or more I, in 2018, uh, um, in, uh, you know, that were up 10% or more in 2017, were down in 2018. Uh -huh. It's extraordinary, the symmetry. So there's clearly regime changes going on within markets, and uh, the best performers and worst performers of hedge funds kind of reflect that as well. But what doesn't change is that investors' money is locked up in those hedge funds. It's not like they can take it out after one year or put it in at the beginning of the year and then take it out at the end. Well, you can, but then, of course, you're doing the market timing yourself. Mm. And uh, that's, that is what one of the things that a fund of funds should be able to do. But there isn't a hedge fund manager I've ever met that sort of says, you know, well, we don't do anything with respect to the environment. We don't care. We'll, you know, some will just say, look, we just keep doing what we do and we believe in it. And over time, it will, it will work out. There's no doubt that that's a valid, uh, uh, you know, a valid strategy. It, you know, but in the case of things like the macro funds, they're supposed to be trading this yeah. kind of a thing. And, you know, you look in 2017, um, you know, in 2017, uh, J.P. Morgan's macro fund was down 15 percent. This year, they're up. You look at Brevin Howard, you know, in 2017, they were down 
six. They see everyone saying fantastic work. They're up 12. But it's all of the symmetry. So the guys that really should be able to deal with these things on a year to year basis. As things change. As things change, aren't responding. If you keep doing the same thing, you'll be right, like a, like a stopped clock. Mm. But, you know, that isn't necessarily alpha. We hear it from the banks an awful lot that it's not the right type of volatility. Are we seeing hedge fund managers adapting to this new era of what's we've had record low volatility since the financial crisis? Now we have got this change afoot. Are we seeing hedge fund managers starting to adapt or indeed changing the computer models to adapt? I'm not sure that we are. I'm not sure that we've seen that. And one of the great challenges of computer models is data. And it, when you go back to a database that runs a decade of continuous, unrealistically low volatility, and uh, you know, in, and that impacts autocorrelations, it impacts all the sort of data. What we've seen is, you know, AHL Evolution Fund was up 17 in 2017, down this year, right? Down, you know, down again this year. Uh, Aspect Capital down 15 this year, down 15 in in 18, uh, up five, and one of the winners mm. in 2017. Very very few of these guys, you know, the, the model worked one year, then it didn't work the next year, or it worked that year, and it didn't work this year. You Basically, were you short or long volatility? And if your model was short volatility, well, you got hurt this year, but were a genius the previous year. And if it was long volatility, it, it worked out the other way around. And I think investors are not going to be thrilled with joy at that, with, with, with these results. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.